Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello, I'm Sophia Chandrasekhar. Welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. Today's episode was actually produced by the Leadership Academy Class of 2020 and is on bad medical laboratory science scenes on television shows. The speakers are Jasmine Ponte, Romy Seltzer, and me, Sophia Chandrasekhar. So like I said before, I'm Sophia, and today I'm joined by two of my Leadership Academy Class of 2020 classmates, Jasmine and Romy. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi. I'm Jasmine Ponte. I'm also a medical laboratory scientist at Natividad Medical Center in Salinas, California. Hello. Hey, I'm Romy Selzer. I'm a senior medical technologist at Transfusion Lab at Henry Ford Hospital in downtown Detroit, Michigan. So to start things off, today's theme is bad laboratory science in television. And I know a lot of us have seen medical shows like House and was it The Good Doctor, Grey's Anatomy, ER, etc., where there are times where like, you know, you know, the the doctors are totally faking it. They don't know what they're doing. And then every once in a while, they drag in the laboratory. And it's like, no, that's, that's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. Each of us will present at least one uh, clip or one saga uh, from a TV show. What we're going to do is we're going to All three of us are going to watch it real quick, and then we're going to come back and describe it to you guys, and then react to it, and also try to recalibrate and say what actually should happen versus what television writers think should happen. So to start things off, uh, we are going to play an episode or a section uh, from Scrubs, one of my favorite TV shows. Uh, It is the episode called My Journey, season two sorry, season three, episode two, and it is Carla's journey with a urine. Okay, so now we've just watched that incredible, incredible series of scenes. Um, So it starts off with Carla, who's a nurse. Uh, She pops up from behind a checking counter or desk and finds an unlabeled urine there. And is, decides to go around and harass everyone to try to figure out whose urine this is. She's determined to, to identify the identity of the owner of this urine, of this man or woman, whoever peed into this cup. So she takes it with her the entire day, including to the cafeteria, which she keeps on her food tray, an unlabeled urine, next to her egg salad sandwich, and promptly gets charged for... Um, apple juice as the person next to her the todd who's a surgeon who also plays the goof one of the goofball idiot side characters has about 10 urine cups on his tray all actually full of apple juice so she gets charged for apple juice um and then she goes around she goes down to the urinalysis lab and she t- she goes up to the laboratory scientist and says, "Hey, you're a la- you're you're a, you're a urinalysis guy. You should care about this urine." And, she- and he just walks away. It's like, nope. I mean, as we all know, if it's unlabeled, we're not using it. So then she keeps going around harassing people. And actually, at this point, in 
This is actually a series of clips from throughout the episode. At this point in the episode, it's day two with this urine, this unlabeled urine. So not sure how good that still is. But finally, she's going around, going around, and the janitor says, hey, I know whose urine that is. Apparently, he went digging through like 50 things of trash, found the one label, and brought it to her. And she slaps on there. She's like, Mr. So-and-so, let's get you down to the lab. <laughs> so what do you guys think? So first of all, let's set the record straight. There is no urine lab tech. We are all medical technologists and urinalysis is part of the usually hematology department. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's urine lab tech is not a position in any hospital whatsoever. Yeah, Second of all, that. like you said, anything unlabeled gets tossed. Doesn't matter the age of the person. It doesn't matter anything about the person. If it's not labeled, it gets tossed. And then two days later, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> I thought it was amazing that she cared so much about who that urine belonged to for that long. Like by the time it's been two days, that I'm sure that person could have peed how many times already. Seriously, like, like, really? And then you bring it into the cafeteria. Like, how sanitary is that? <laughs> so unsanitary. I could not believe. I'm like, I mean, I've never seen a nurse care so much about an unlabeled tear. I will say, at, at my facility, we have a policy of if we have anything unlabeled, we have a problem sample box or like, yeah, a problem sample box that we fill out and we keep it for 24 hours because we always get phone calls at like, you know, an hour later, I sent down a urine and I haven't got a urinalysis back. Where is this? And it's like, well, actually, uh, it was unlabeled or like, we actually, we're like, you know, we don't even know. Like, you know, we received an unlabeled urine at this time. I don't know if it's your patient or not. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have a similar policy for, uh, so like we have, a, we, we do the same thing with unlabeled urines, but we only call stat or like unlabeled specimens, but we only call it stat specimens that are unlabeled. Do you guys have a similar policy at your facilities? Um, actually anything unlabeled since I, I don't know how core laboratory is, but in the blood bank, anything unlabeled just gets credited. We don't call you. We, it's your responsibility to check, to see what happened. Mm, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, see, I'm in a core lab, so like we we just keep it. Um, if it has a label in it, we'll cancel the order or send it for redraw. But that's pretty much it. Um, we don't. Yeah, in our lab, we just toss it because there's no way to identify. And if the nurse, you know, calls, hey, I, I brought this urine down uh, two hours ago, we'll just say we don't have it. We don't. Yeah, I don't think they keep unlabeled. It depends, though. Like, if it's a spinal fluid or something. Yeah, it depends. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I it was, yeah. Yeah. If we get body fluids that are unlabeled, or we have, like, what we call an irreplaceable specimen form. And if it's something that's absolutely irreplaceable, then, yeah, you can come down and sign for it. Um, I, I think one of the strangest ones I've ever seen was for hair. Because apparently um, the they were unable to obtain any more hair for um, I think it was like heavy metal screening or heavy metal for a mail outs. So they were able to come down and um, 
sign out for it or officially sign for it. And obviously, you know, when they sign for it, it's the nurse is taking responsibility and the doctors are taking responsibility for any results and any treatments that come of this unlabeled specimen. And it's all documented, put into our safe reports and sent to like quality management and stuff. So much work for that. <laughs> yep. Same. Well, um, in the blood bank, even for those kind of specimens, we still toss them like um, unlabeled or mislabeled core, core blood which is something that you can only collect once. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, mm-hmm. it gets tossed and we just request a type and screen on, on the baby. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I'd imagine with blood bank, it's a lot more strict because you guys are so regulated, you know, with FDA yeah. and such. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's a whole different ball game. Sure. Yeah, that's... Oof. There's, there's a reason why uh, I... When when we started applying for jobs, I was like, I'll stick with the core lab. Please and thank you. <laughs> I always love uh, blood bank, so I'm, I'm happy I ended up there. Um, but the other thing I found really funny on, on this clip on how they depict everything is no gloves. Who yeah. in the red hands yeah. will touch a urine cup with no gloves? <laughs> How unsanitary is that? That's a good catch. It's like, yeah, yeah. Veterans too. They don't even. Well, the ones I worked with, they they didn't wear gloves. I'm like, wait, why are you guys not wearing gloves? And they like get on me about, well, you know, in my days, back in my day, we used to mouth pipe head. <laughs> like, Both oh my god, eat everything. Gloves. Yeah, that that's a good catch. I didn't really. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Oh yeah, wasn't it glass too? I think so. I think it was like one of those glass, like the metal screw tops. So it's like an old, much older, like the old kinds, like the the kind that you would see, like maybe um, kidney stones come down in or something. You know, that's old school. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I didn't even, I didn't even catch that. I, I also thought it was really funny um, in the last clip when the janitor is like, you know, saying that he found the label. He also says he found the other nurse's tooth. I don't know if you guys kept watching, but um, she yeah. he hands her the tooth and she just comes to him. And she's like, this is a chiclet. <laughs> and he's like, I got to go. <laughs> it's like, why would you even try to take that tooth and put it back in your mouth? Just just all this because I'm just thinking like all the samples and all the things that go in a trash can that should be incinerated first off. Like, I right. like. That's, I mean, you don't know what that bag has been touched with. It could have been splashed with pee, could have been splashed with blood, with body fluid, with, oh. Yeah, I'm surprised you found that urine because I think, at least for us, I, it would be incinerated, be gone by now, two days later. I'm sure you cannot ever find that urine again. Yeah. And most information with patient or, or most things that have patient information would be tossed in a confidential bin that's under lock yeah so you wouldn't even be able to go digging for it yeah like especially especially that trash can's been taken out um i'm at a large facility so our trash gets taken out like at least every every day in the morning but we have a room that we just put all the trash cans that are full and, and by the end of the day there's probably like 20 30 trash cans like the small cardboard ones and the big giant gray bins that they have to empty out and incinerate right mm-hmm. we have so many I can't imagine having to dig through all that. And on top of that, a nurse's trash bin, which probably also has gloves and like sterile pads that probably aren't sterile anymore. And 
and food and who knows what else is in that trash can. And you're digging through all of that to find a label. <laughs> I think you just need to, I think you just need to not worry about that pee anymore. Plus what test is good for, for your analysis? That's that old unlabeled not at room temperature. Yeah. And after two days, wouldn't it show up in the chart saying that you're missing results for something? You would be alerted to who didn't get their testing done. That's yeah, I think so. But I think I think it's because it's it's an older TV show that it was like all paper charts because they had an episode like oh. one clip where like they're throwing a clipboard chart at somebody and just flew out the window. Um, which also, oh god, HIPAA. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think I think it probably has to do with that. Like they maybe aren't as aware because of this. There's no major LIS system. But yeah, at the same time, like I feel like a nurse would be calling by now and saying, "Hey, where's that PE I sent?" You know. Yep, they would be. I'm not happy either. <laughs> no, because what? Like a year analysis, at least our place, a year analysis is only good for two hours at room temp. Yeah. So it. You're not getting your analysis off that. You're not getting, I mean, you might be able to get a chemistry off it, but even then, like, there's, I don't remember our, our, um, limits for it. Yeah. You're in drug screen. Yeah, maybe. But even then, I don't, even, even then the first problem is it's unlabeled and who knows how long it's been unlabeled for, and like, for all we know, that urine could have been staying there for longer. And for all we know, it could have actually been one of Todd's apple juices that he left around and he just left on the desk. <laughs> If it was apple juice, that would be funny. <laughs> that would be an interesting. Gravity is. Yeah, that that would be an interesting. I would. I wonder what would a dipstick show for, for apple juice. Just <laughs> Hey, listeners, if any of you have a point of care or any like you know, you know, uh, urine chemistry strips at home just laying around that are expired, and you know, you just want to try it out, stick in some apple juice and let us know. What are the results for apple juices? And do different apple juices have different chemistries? Because that would be very interesting. I'm sure it does. Maybe the pH is, I'd imagine, very low. Acidic? I don't know. But it also has sugar. Oh, the glucose would be off the roof. Yeah. Question is, would it it show? I'm wondering if, like, you know, the nitrites would show up. Because depending on how long you've had that apple juice. juice. I was going to say, like, what if you've got people who are, like, you know, Back, like you know, drinking out of the apple juice container and back swishing, like would that show up? And like, enough. see, that would also be terrifying too to like actually do do like testing of your food. I'm good. <laughs> no, I'm, I'd, I'd rather not. Okay, so maybe don't test the food in your fridge because that'd be horrific. <laughs> Things in your fridge in terms of bacteria, I would be surprised. Oh, slather some cheese on it. That's. Oh, oh God! Can you can you grow cheese on an auger plate? I I'm curious if you could. Wow. I'm sure I'm sure there's food scientists out there who tried it. Take a swab and then just um, stick it on a plate. See what happens. Yeah. All right. Who would like to go next? I just sent the link for you two um, in the chat, but watch it from the beginning. It's a four and a half minute of yeah four and a half minute clip. Okay, that was scary. I just watched the clip. That was... Disturbing? <laughs> yeah. Why, yeah. I, 
Like So Grey's Anatomy is, is one of my favorite shows and I'm probably one of the few people who still watch it and watched it since the beginning. Um, I know a lot of people dropped it not by now, but when I saw this episode, I was extremely disturbed, <laughs> to say the least. As a transfusion medicine medical technologist, this really horrified me. Yeah, transfusion reaction. Yeah. Here, Romy, why don't you describe what happened in the, in the clip for our listeners? Okay, so this is an episode um, in season 14 um, of Grey's Anatomy. So Meredith Gray and Levi Schmidt are doing some kind of surgery. In the middle of the surgery or beginning, I can't remember what it was, they lose power. So they can't see and the patient is starting to get worse. So they need blood. Um, Meredith decides she needs blood. She asks specifically for the patient's blood type, which uh, that's another issue. But she asks for blood. Schmidt Acts, it's behaving his uh, usual clumsy self and um, goes in search for the blood after dropping a few things in the way. <laughs> um, and he comes back and says that the blood bank is locked and he tried several floors blood banks and um, there's nothing that, he, there's, the code wouldn't work because of the power outage. Um, so Meredith says that she can't do the surgery and the patient is already opened up. And then she turns around and she asks who's O negative and Schmidt was. So they hook him up to the patient and they start a blood transfusion that way. So that's pretty much like the gist of it. And she continues with the surgery. Um, and I know by the end he passes out because of the blood loss and those kind of things. And then at the end, they give him um, IV fluids and, and to get him better um, and that. But yeah, so that's pretty much the scenario that we see in here. And there's a lot, a lot wrong with it. So I, just, I, I watched that. When I watched that, my first thing was that power, that power was out for a good 10 seconds. People are dead. Just saying, like. You guys should have tested your backup generators ages ago. People have died because there's people hooked up to machines. What is wrong with your hospital? That's my first thought. Aside from the the horrendous, God, it was it was it was really really bad. It was just it was so bad. And poor guy was sitting on a bench like a bench stool. What the heck? Yeah, it was like a tiny little bench stool. It do. Yeah, like like was it. She she said something that like I just kind of astounded me. She was like she wouldn't have opened her up if she knew didn't know that blood wasn't going to be available. Isn't that one of the first things you do as a typing screen before you do a surgery? Oh. Well, they, she did have blood already hanging for the patient. Okay. So it sounds like they had a typing screen. They just don't have access to the blood bank. Well, first of all, no doctor would have access to the blood bank because they don't work there. That's what medical laboratory scientists are for. Those who specialize or even those who are generalists with blood bank, that's what our job is. Give blood for surgeries, for anemia, for all kinds of different um, issues. But that's our job. You are not allowed in the blood bank just taking blood from the shelves. 
And second of all, there's only one blood bank per hospital. <laughs> there is not several blood banks that you can go from floor to floor searching for blood. Yes, the ER in our institution has an emergency um, cooler in the blood bank, in, in their um, trauma room. Um, actually, two rooms are called resuscitation room one and two. Um, in between them, there's these um, cooler or this mini fridge where we keep two opas and two on eggs as emergency stock. And the doctors know that those are not type, type uncrossed. So it's up to them to take the risk if their patient really needs it. Oh, interesting. Um, we also have a couple of the clinics um, that have ERs that have the same setup. Oh. But mm. other than that, we give you the blood when you need it. And even if it's uncross-matched, it's still us giving you the blood. You do not have access to the blood bank unless you work there. There is no code on the door for you to pant. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that, that really yeah. like, what? I'm thinking of... If that hospital is rich enough to have that many blood banks, to also hire that many techs for blood bank, they should probably also do backup generator tests. Just saying. Right? And there's a misconception about O-negative blood being um, good for everyone. And for the most part, it's not a wrong assumption, but it's not the right one either. O-negative blood is the universal donor. Mm-hmm. But you can have antibodies to red cell antigens that could cause transfusion reactions. And those are antigens are still un- available or still part of your own neck blood. So that's why top and screens and type and cross matches are so important. Because if we know what your blood type is, if we know if you have antibodies to specific antigens, we can give you exactly what you need. Right. Mm, mm -hmm, I mean, if everyone was compatible with O negative blood, which, by the way, I get this all the time, unfortunately, from ER doctors that are not as educated as they should be regarding blood bank and asking me when I when we tell them we're working on their patient, they have a positive antibody screen, they might have an antibody we're trying to figure out so we can give them the best blood that the patient can get. And they tell me, well, just give, give me own egg. And I'm like, well, that's still not the answer. Okay. Because your own egg, if you're, let's say your patient has an anti-JKA or an anti-BK or whatever it is, can still kill your patient. Right. Even if yeah. the blood is own egg. <laughs> so... No, O-neg people otherwise would be in labs being drained of their blood, especially in this time of shortage. Uh-huh. I don't want of them, so I don't want that to happen. Wait, you're O-neg? I'm O-neg, yes. So you're telling me, Romy, next time, next time we run out of blood, we just hook you up to a patient. You're good to go. <laughs> Apparently, that's the procedure according to Grey's Anatomy. Did they say what their blood type was? The patient? I don't know. I think they said it was B-neg. Yeah, it was B-neg. So if you do have an available type and screen, we can't give them B-neg. But she went straight to asking who's 
Oneg. She didn't even bring the patient. She said, the patient is Beneg. Let's give them Oneg. Who's Oneg? Oh my gosh. It was, I just, just watching it and oh, it was just, oh, it hurt to watch that so bad. <laughs> and also, if you think about the different, um, um, the different companies that, or the different distributors of blood, because most of the blood does not get donated directly to the hospital. It goes through a distribution center. There's blood centers where they get the donations. They separate the different blood products, which there are four. You can get red cells, plasma, cryo, and platelets. Um, Sectors are a little different. They can get from that, but they're mostly in your cryo. But it gets separated and it gets tested for all these different pathogens that you can have in your blood. And there's a very lengthy questionnaire to make sure that you're qualified to donate blood. We don't just blindly give blood to anyone without testing it. So that's like another thing. But yeah, there was a lot, a lot wrong with this episode or this part of the episode that I, when I watched it originally, I was just horrified. <laughs> yeah. It, it actually reminded me of this one thing I saw. So like in history books, um, they show like old, I've seen pictures of old uh, blood transfusions where it's either like a literally like a glass jar above somebody's head with like a thick very very thick rubber tube that you know we'd probably put like you know tips in or something but that's what they would have plugged up to the patient for blood and i've also seen like in um in some history books like they have photos of people hooked up to other people because they're like oh well this person's kind of healthier than this one and they kind of they have the same blood type and then unsurprisingly there was a large amount of uh deaths also attributed to that Oh yeah, and like infections and sepsis, and I mean these. I mean these were all wartime pictures I've seen. So I was like, mm, I'm not surprised that you know passing one blood to another person might have sepsis. Just mm. oh yeah, another I mean, thing to bring up on that episode was there anyone monitoring her vitals or his vitals? The no, case? they just asked him how he felt, and he was like, "I feel hot. Is anyone else hot?" And they're like, "Yeah, no, it's not just you. Don't worry." And then like, he starts getting super loopy and, and like, what he's like, huh, bring it like what, what do you say? Um, front row seats to the to the yeah. surgery arena, and then gets nauseous, needs a a basin to vomit in, and then proceeds to pass out on the first pass out into her into her like on the patient. Her, she passed out on the patient, and she's like, just cover it with another thing, and it's like, well, no, wait, don't you have to sterilize that again? But like, he passed out on the patient, and they roll him off onto the ground. He's just like laying on the ground, which and the also nonchalant about it. Like, so no, she's like, maybe I should take his spleen or something. But like, also, wouldn't by gravity, wouldn't because he's on the ground and not above? Because like, they had his arm above her, which is what reminded me of the old historical photos, mm-hmm. but. If he's on the ground, wouldn't the blood go in reverse? <laughs> that would kill him. I'm pretty sure because what she's being egg, he's own egg. That would kill him. That would that'd be really bad. If he's yeah. hot, maybe that's why he got hot. He had a reaction. Yeah, maybe he was having a reaction because that maybe that's why he was like he was getting all hot and stuff. Yeah, not one person was taking temperature or monitoring anything on him mm-hmm. at all. Not oh man, that's so bad. Right. Oh, yeah. and then and then at the end he like hobbles into the patient's room. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this was the episode of How Not to Blood Bank 101. <laughs> Don't panic. That's a good one. And do not follow anything you've seen here at all. Actually, I was I was clicking when I clicked on it. Um, there's a comment at the bottom. There's a there's a comment in the video clip on the YouTube uh, link where it says, um, "As from six months ago, as a blood banker, this makes my whole body cringe." <laughs> <laughs> that is my sentiments exactly. <laughs> Shout out to Taylor Tamman. We completely agree with you. It this was awful. <laughs> Is this, I don't watch this show. Is this show usually this dramatic with everything and over the top? Yeah, yeah. It usually is. Every single episode, something traumatic happens. Um, Either surgery goes wrong or someone gets into an accident or like someone needs a shooting or whatever it is. So, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, if you also think about it, most blood banks and most hospitals have um, procedures for co- what we call code triage. Mm-hmm. So we have code triage internal and code triage external. Depending a power outage like that, um, if it affects not just the hospital, but the city would be a code triage external, which means we know that um, there's going to be mass casualty or mass amount of people coming mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the hospital. And there are procedures in the blood bank where we prepare coolers to move around if we need to evacuate. Or if we need to preserve the blood, we put them in coolers with uh, different with um, the, the ice, um, making sure it does not touch the units, by the way. Ice or dry ice cannot touch any products. Um, but anything that needs refrigeration would be in a cooler, refrigerated it will not last for very long but we would have some available again it would not be up to the doctors to say who gets what it that's what the um medical um uh, what you call it the um directors medical directors are for um doctors would consult with them to see how to proceed but in this case, it would be a co-triage external, and the blood bank would be prepared for someone needing blood. Right. Uh, actually, so I my, I had a friend who mentioned this clip to me as well, and she said the worst part is the 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 scrub nurse that's helping the main person. Apparently, she's actually a real scrub nurse. I feel like she should have said something. Like this is not how it happens ever. Just. <laughs> But how many times do you talk to doctors or nurses and they really don't understand exactly how we do our job or how it really works? True, true. So I work in point of care and I get that uh, relationship with the nurses and doctors. So it's interesting to hear like um, their point of view of the laboratory and I try to give them little bits and pieces of, oh, actually the laboratory is like this. Maybe I can give you a tour and show you around. Do you want to come with me or something like that? So, yeah, it's interesting talking with the nurses and doctors. <laughs> doctors, though, are very hard to get. Like, oh, my gosh. It's so hard to catch them or talk to them for a bit. But I, I, I have a friend. She she was a med tech. She was a, med, she was a microbiologist for a while, but she went through the program with me um, when we went to school. And she's currently a med student. And she's like, 
partially because I've been harping on her, but also because she's awesome this way. She, one of her things is when, whenever they do lab work, whenever they do laboratory things, and if someone says something that's not right about the laboratory, she tries to correct them. She's like, well, actually, um, that test, you didn't order a stat, so they're going to treat it differently. And actually, it does take a while. And actually, this, like, uh, like uh, apparently when they're going through their uh, micro lab, which they only had for, I think she's like a week or two weeks, understandably she was the fastest one at reading plates because she was a microbiologist for a year and a half. And she's just like this, 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 like flipping the plates. And they're like, hold, like handing her a red one. Like, is this she blood auger? It's like, yes. <laughs> well, I had um, a coworker and her husband um, was a doctor um, or he was doing his residency and she made sure that not only him, but the, his fellow residents were being, educated on blood bank practices in the ER. That's good. That's good. So it, it, with a little bit of education, I think it's doable. I do like, however, the fact that they changed um, our kind of title and we're called medical laboratory scientist and medical technologist, because I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, so you just have an associate degree. Or you didn't school in it at all. It's just a high school, out of high school. And no, we all have, or most of us have bachelor's degrees. We went to college, a four-year college. We did get educated on how to do this job. Mm-hmm. And we know the background of it. Yes, maybe the doctors know a little bit more about interpreting results than we do, depending, especially for like hematologies and chemistries and those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, but we are highly educated to perform this job. We're the ones to tell you why you can't get a potassium off of a hemolyzed sample. We're the ones to tell you why the color of a sample does, in fact, matter for certain tests like coagulation tests. If your sample is too enteric, there is a reason why, you know, we can't give you a good coag result because it's so dark and that that instrument's going to think it's a clot when it's not a clot for all we know, you know, like that's, that's our specialty. And that's why we're very important in the healthcare fields because we, we're the troubleshooters. We're the ones who can raise the problem and say, this is why this doesn't work and try to help you find a better solution. One nice thing that my facility has, we have what we call the ambassador program. Each of the floors has an ambassador in the lab that they can ask for questions and the ambassador is supposed to like, you know, check in with the nurses. Is there anything that you guys need? Is there anything that we can clarify on? And just try to try to really help that education, dispel any rumors or myths like, you know, oh, if it comes down a tube station too hard, it hemolyzes. It's like, well, I mean, if you come down a roller coaster, are you hemolyzed? No. So, you know, <laughs> you're not dead from a roller coaster. Um, I know. I get that all the time when they tell you, well, it wasn't hemolyzed when I drew it. Like, well, how, how would you, you know? <laughs> you did, did you, you leave it sitting there long enough for it to, to separate? Because that takes like, you know, a good 20, 30 minutes. And even then, uh, that CBC better be well mixed. That coag better be well mixed. You better have mixed that chemistry because we use SSTs. It needs to be clotted. I had one time, it was it was actually, instead of saying that this chemistry serum is too viscous, I said, it's been clotting, so I'm just, you know, wringing out the clot and just trying to get it to run again. She came running down with a new uh, gold top tube before it clotted. And then I explained to her, like, you know, thank you so much for caring so much, but honestly, we're, it's supposed to clot. It should clot before we spin it, and that's just the issue because, you know, the clotting factors are just not below the gel and things like that. And she was like, 
oh, okay. So she's like, you know, it was an education moment for her. But I do feel bad that she drew the patient again because I was oh, like, yeah. oh, I'm so sorry. I I didn't I didn't mean for I didn't mean to to scare you into drawing the patient again. And also the order of drawing blood is important and the color of the tubes are important. You cannot just uncap them and switch them around. I've received serum separators before with a pink top. Yeah. And that is a no. So as a point of care coordinator, I teach new nurses. And one of the things I have to teach them is um, specimen collection and how you draw or what's the order of draw, micro specimens, et cetera. And I get the most questions in that section of my class, the specimen collection. They have so many questions about like the order of draw, uh, micro specimens, writing the source or how to draw blood culture. So that's fun. I actually like that part of the class. <laughs> Go Jasmine. Go Jasmine and outreach education. Yes. In my institution, there's a little um, card that you can put with your badge yes. that has oh, colored and the order of the different tubes. And I thought for anyone that needs it, that's great because it's like a cheat sheet and it's always available and on you. That's yeah. Like, yeah. Um, the class, I give them that little card that they could put on their badge and they, they love it. They love that. So <clears throat> got to start somewhere and hopefully... <laughs> All right, so my scene is from a soap opera. I don't know if you guys have watched mm. soap operas. I used to watch them a lot when I was younger, when I had summer and nothing else to do. Um, it's in the email. I don't know if you guys saw my email. Are you doing the general hospital one? Yes, it's kind of long, it's interesting. Okay. Oh, five minutes, not too bad. What? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I started laughing. Oh, I'm not gonna I feel bad, but I laughed through how bad that was so bad. So it starts off, I believe this person, the lady is she works for in the laboratory from what I'm interpreting in this scene. She's looking for a doctor named Patrick. I don't know his last name. And she thinks he's in ER, but he actually was in the laboratory. So she goes to the lab finds him on the floor there's gas in there passed out so she's freaking out and then i think they also put it, um, a focus on the sample and then it's just the patient's name on there she pulls the guy the doctor out <clears throat> tries to bring him back by blowing one air into his mouth he comes back and then she goes oh wait i need to get the sample goes back inside and i thought it was a patient sample but actually it's a medicine for the patient and then she gets locked in emergency doors lock and then the gas is fuming in she's still standing she's locked out and then sad story ending it blows up the laboratory and it blows up because some liquid dropped to the ground like yeah like okay so this so so i'm like, like wrapping my head around this episode or this clip so like there's medicine, there's, she called it the protocol, some medicine in the lab, first off, with just the patient name, nothing else, 
just a handwritten patient name. And no it, one else working in the lab. There's no, yeah, no one else in the lab. There's like all sorts of, there's like food coloring liquid everywhere. Like there's like. You don't see that in chemistry. No. Okay. This was in 2012, but still you don't see liquids out like that in the bench. No. You don't. And anything that could cause fumes is under a hood. Exactly. Where's the hood? Why is the, why is the Bunsen? Why is like, like, cause here's like, it wasn't even like, like the, the, the gas I think they were trying to show was like just one of those, just Bunsen burner gases. And yep. those things stink to high hell. So, you know, when you've turned it on, not to mention it should be why under the it? hood. Right. Right. Doing in there by himself. Why is yeah. he in there? And, the fumes. So, for so we'll, we'll include links to all, all these clips in the description or something. But the the fumes were basically dry ice fumes. It looked like it was. They're trying to visualize fumes, right? And this and it's just so yeah. So whatever this Bunsen burner gas is, and there's just liquid that's spilled on the countertop and somehow hasn't exploded with everything. But then once it, it like, it's like creeping towards the edge of the table and then it drops onto the ground and it causes an explosion. Mm-hmm. She also has her locked in, but says evacuate. <laughs> so I don't know how you're supposed to evacuate if you're locked in. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But the fumes were already there when he was on the floor. Yeah. Why did it locked for her and not when he was in there? Right. It's the same fumes. Also, why like, and that reminds me of, like the air system. So like we we have liquid nitrogen tanks in one of our labs, and that most of our air, most of our, I mean, most hospitals in general have an air filtration system that basically cycles out the air every X amount of minutes. I think ours is nineteen minutes. If he's been in there long enough to be on the ground, shouldn't that air have cycled out? And also, shouldn't those like those fumes were just like you know dissipating around the table? Like I said, it was dry ice pretty much, but should have been like you know sucked up somewhere. I mean, possibly was just I don't really know what the chemical was, or it looks like I don't know what it was—the liquid. It's some but, clear I mean, liquid. It, it just seems highly unlikely that um, for however long he was on the ground, and then he survived after one breath, rolled into his mouth, <laughs> and he goes in, grabs this. I mean, first of all, you don't even—you should not go in the room. It's not worth it. Just don't. Just stay out. Whatever that was, and then. And why wasn't he holding the door for her so she could no, go get it? Right? They both come out. Uh, like, like <laughs> if you're worried about being trapped in a room with gases, as awful as this is, and as like with so with the liquid nitrogen protocol, if nitrogen gas escapes, you're not supposed to open the door if the alarm goes off. Because with all these alarms, police is supposed to be there, and you're supposed to call nine one one. To get this whole process going, to start it, to get firefighters in, to get like get the ED ready, get cops ready, to really like if need be evacuate because you're really not supposed to go in because as you know nitrogen displaces uh, oxygen, and if you were to go in, you yourself could also die, like fall over and die. There have been a couple of incident incidences where that has happened, which is why we have a nitrogen protocol in place as well as nitrogen monitors we even have camera systems to watch out to see if something happens when i was at my blood bank rotation i remember asking my instructor i was like what's that alarm thing on the wall she's like oh it's a nitrogen monitor for hpc Mm. i was like oh okay and then of course later the alarm goes off so the first thing she does she calls over there no one's picking up so she runs over there takes a look on the monitors didn't see anything on the monitors so then she looks through the window and when you look through the window there's a pair of legs sticking up from behind a nitrogen tank 
which was terrifying. Um, yeah. So she sees that. She's like, got to call 911. And so she runs to the phone to go call 911. And of course, the safety officer comes out. She's like, it's a drill. It's a drill. Don't worry. You pass. Like, you know, like you follow protocol. Exactly. And of course, the two students were just running with their instructor. Like, what's going on? Oh, my God. Their legs. <laughs> there are protocols in place. In this situation, they learn, okay, now we need a protocol for explosions. <laughs> <laughs> They did get they did get one thing right. Ninety percent of the laboratories are in the basement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they got that part pretty accurate. Yeah. Also, you said this came out in twenty twelve, right? Yes. Why is nothing in a flammable closet? Right. <laughs> flammable closets exist. You don't you don't have things that out willy nilly. All of that would be under its own hood. Because you don't want it out willy-nilly. You have a chemical hood for the chemicals. And they don't have one. No. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, watching it again right now. I'm, like, like just playing in the background. I'm looking at the liquids. And it just looks like seraphin. It just looks like seraphin mixed with water. <laughs> well, it's probably, most likely. But, like, this is so bad. Also, I just, I personally feel bad that his face is on the ground and his mouth is all up on the ground. Like... His face, he's face planted in his mouth. He's like, he's like really sliding his face across that ground. That's so gross. That, that ground <laughs> is probably covered in blood and urine and things that are kicked on that we can't get off anymore. <laughs> Who knows? When she said the, or something about their daughter, I was like, oh, sad. Oh, kind gosh. Of sad. Sadness. I'm sure she, it's a soap opera, so I'm sure she somehow survived it. I hope so. Oh, yeah. But I bet she comes out with amnesia, though. (laughs) Or half her body is burned and she needs some kind of uh, skin graft (laughs) protocol. So I'm just trying to, like, see more of the setup of the lab because I'm just so curious with how they have this setup. And it looks like it doesn't, I mean, it looks more like um, a chemistry lab from college. But even the research, like, it looks more like a research yeah, lab. Yeah, there you go. It looks like a research lab. Well, it did say on the, the door, it's a research laboratory number three or research lab. But nothing is labeled either. Like mm-hmm. we're very, even researchers, everyone is very anal about labeling everything. We even have like a label maker. That's how right. anal we are in my laboratory. Yeah. We have a label maker. Everything is labeled. We know what everything is. And that is a requirement from CAP. I mean, you can't just have things laying around without knowing what they are. Yeah, like the beakers are not labeled. It's like all all the liquids have the same exact color. How do you know what they are if it's not labeled? Yeah, like what if you put it down, go to lunch and come back and then you're like, wait, was I titrating or not? I forget where I was. Also, also, why didn't she turn off the gas? The gas is still on. The gas is still on. Like, just turn off the gas. Get a spill kit. That's another one. If she, if she works, if she works in the lab, she should know where her spill kit is. That is part of yearly competency: is knowing for where your spill kits are for safety. I think she's supposed to be a nurse. Okay. In, okay. So in the show, it just he's a doctor or something like that. Because there's no marking on her on her badge or anything. And when they said, oh, he was looking for you, she's like, oh, the lab. So I assume that she was a lab staff or something, but possibly. It's unclear. 
Well, there, there we go. We can ask if you're listening to this and you have more information on this character's background, please let us know because it did not make sense to us. Make sense at all. Also, also just saying the amount of time he stood there just screaming her name, Robin, 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 couldn't he have gone to get help by then? Yeah. Or broken the window. Just, you know. It's not like there's, was it? I think there's like a, a fire extinguisher next to him or something. There's a cart. With the, not machete, the. the oh, the, the fire axe. Yeah, the axe thing. Do they have one of those? They should. Well, they were just worried about the protocol. It seems like that's all she cared about. The protocol. Oh, God. This. That protocol. What's that medicine? And doors don't just lock like that. I mean,. They know that people need to evacuate. They don't, yeah. they might close, like our doors will automatically, if they're propped open, will automatically close, but you can get out. In and out. Yeah. It's not like you just stand there locked in and it's, no, if there's going to be an explosion, you get the f- hell out of there. It's like, oh no, evacuate. But sorry, the door is closed. But evacuate. But the door is closed. I don't like, I, most worried. places have more than one door too. Yeah. Like like we have two doors. You should. For the for fire safety, you should have two fire escape routes. Two exits, yeah. Yeah, two exits. And preferably at least two doors. I know we have we have three doors. Yeah, we have like three main doors, but then we also have access to other different labs through like hallways and stuff that would also let us out. So it's like it, this is drama for drama's sakes. I feel like <laughs> makes makes my body hurt from cringe. Drama to the <clears throat> soap operas, yes. Oh yeah, I'm d- so yeah. So actually, I see something. So. No, I was, I was, like, so I was, I'm still like playing, clicking through to see what it, what it could be, and I do see the orange bottles labeled something sulfide, and I'm concerned that it's in a clear bottle and not in a light protected bottle. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. Yep. Yeah. It's all like light protected bottles. Also, so I'm one. I'm one of the safety officers from my lab, and one there. One this might be. A, I don't think it's a new thing. But also, there's so much flammable and toxic reagent stored above eye level. Aren't they not supposed to do that? Yeah, supposed to do that. Because if it falls on you, then obviously it's in your eyes. You go blind. Um, if it's not in a flammable cabinet, it should be below you. It should be like below, like waist or below for safety. Honestly, if it's flammable, it really should be in a flammable cabinet. Yeah, that's you know, a lot. Like, like, there's, like there's a certain amount you're allowed to have out per square footage i think or like allowed in a in a um flammable cabinet per square footage like certain like volume i don't remember that's the top of my head but i i remember trying to you know count all the bottles and get an estimate of like how much everything was but yeah there's a flammable cabinet there are also just flammable cabinets and i know those definitely existed because um my chemistry lab that was built in the 60s has janky old 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 flammable cabinets you can tell because the they have the fonts from the 60s. So, you know, they existed. Laboratory safety exists. Be nice if they followed it. Yeah. I think this is a good example of what not to do. (laughs) I mean, if you think about all these shows, they do get um, expert advice from doctors and expert advice from nurses and expert advice 
expert advice from like all kinds, like police officers or uh, firefighters. Why are they not asking for expert advice from medical laboratory scientists? That's that's what maybe that's what we need. We need ASCLS needs to have a media's like just a media consultation. If you want good, accurate, like how does a lab work? How can you make the lab dramatic without actually making the lab not accurate? You can definitely make the lab super dramatic. You know, doctors calling and waiting on a result, but that sample is like still clotting and still clotting, or you're having to dilute it and dilute it, and they're waiting and they're waiting. You can make that so dramatic, and because it feels, you know. So you're like, oh my God, it needs to go. Like, like interoperative PTHs, they need the result. They need the result, but still going. It's still going. And they're like, you know, h- hanging on for that last result for that phone call. You can do that um, and, and do it accurately. I'm yeah. still gonna, I still got to do another dilution. Give me like two more minutes. <laughs> right. Or I'm still finishing that screen. Just give me five more minutes and I'll finish the type and screen for you. I'll have blood for you. We need to call the pathologist in to, to check this, this smear review for a pathologist review. Like you can, you can have full episodes of drama based off of that. You don't need this ridiculous. I'm locked in and I can't get up. It's telling me to evacuate, and I'm going to die from an explosion of water dropping on the ground. I don't know. Great. They should create a a TV show in the laboratory. Is there even one? I don't think so. There needs to be one. Well, some labs have plenty of drama. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We can probably write one if we combine all the labs in the oh United God. States and probably internationally and just create a soap opera based on that. Last year at our joint annual meeting in Chicago, no, sorry, two years ago in Chicago, um, there was they started their story time or like uh, the story story uh, jam, story slam. Um, yeah. And one of the stories was about a lab tech who received a urine that was supposed to be protected from light. It's a 24-hour collection urine. And so she was telling us that, you know, it came down wrong or something happened. They they needed to recollect. And the nurse responded back with, I don't think the patient's willing to do that. And they're like, why? I don't think the patient's willing to sit in the dark again for 24 hours. <laughs> like you could have a whole episode revolving around that. The miscommunication of protect from light. Like somehow the nurse thought protect from light, thought she had to protect the patient from light. Not the urine. Oh my god! And it's like that poor, poor patient. I feel so bad for her. I like, mean, the question, like, why would I want to put my patient in the dark for two hours? Right. Like, There's also that, like, where does where is the science? Like, I don't understand where the science, the thinking of that is. You know, like, how how does that make sense? I, I can't even I can't even think of a reason to keep a patient in the dark to do a test, like. Your blood is protected from light in your body, essentially. You know, your urine is definitely protected from light inside your organs. By the time you pee, just put it in a dark container. Uh, yeah, the orange one. <laughs> well, and that's why teaching, not just for medical laboratory scientists, but any profession, teaching them critical thinking is so important. Yes. yes. And being, being comfortable with speaking out if something looks wrong. Yes. And not being afraid of learning or being corrected. Because, yes, you might know a lot about your field, but you probably don't know more than me about mine. But if we collaborate together, nurses and doctors and medical laboratory scientists, we can give care a lot better than what 
each one of us just not trusting each other can. Yeah, I think that sometimes the gap is as scientists, we're afraid to speak up. Like we know what we're talking about, but we're just afraid to say or to question the doctor. Like, why did you order this test? Like, I mean, I see that the patient is having these results, but I'm not sure why you, you know, right. They just kind of go with what the doctor orders. That's what they ordered. That's what they want. Okay. But yeah, and I, I think that's one good thing about the DCLS, just, just as a plug-in for the DCLS program um, at multiple schools now. Like, like uh, Brandy was saying at a recent conference that uh, Dr. Gonzalez, she's the first DCLS, uh, Doctor of Clinical Laboratory Science, in the world, which is amazing. She's an ASCLS member, so yay, us. Um, she was saying at a recent conference that... Um, you know, she she's able to sit in on these strange cases, on these cases, and just look over charts, and also just basically tell doctors you don't need to order that. You know, this this patient came in with uh, a a tick like um, I think I forget what it was like a fever or like lethar- leth- uh, lethargy and like tiredness and stuff, but he apparently had a tick bite from like twenty years ago, and so they were doing all sorts of panels and screenings for tick bites and things, and it's like. That was 20 years ago. That's like yeah. he, he had he had right. like 30, 40 tests ordered, send out and in-house. Like that's not necessary. And she like went through the patient's history with the doctor and it's like, based off this, I would recommend ordering this kind of stuff first. And just checking here, starting here before you just, yeah. you know, was like the shotgun method. You shoot everywhere to hopefully catch something, which is costing patients extra money. Um, introducing hospital-born, uh, hospital-acquired anemia, all sorts of issues like that. Longer stay, maybe, in the mm-hmm. hospital. Don't know what's going on with the patient. <clears throat> you just hold them and hold them until you're like, well, maybe we'll figure something out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I yeah. think if the doctors could just come into the laboratory, <laughs> that'd be so cool. Well, we do have we do have doctors coming into the transfusion medical uh, transfusion medicine department. Um, they do get to see what the lab looks like and what our process looks like. And someone usually does a type and screen with them and show them what a positive screen is and and how long it would take us to solve this. But it's like a couple of hours, right? I like the beginning of re- their residency or during their residency, when you're talking about, well, I've been a doctor for 20 years, are you going to even remember that? Probably not. No. You probably no, no. just forgot. And if you're not really interested in the subject, because I've had doctors that when I was explaining all of this to them, they looked at me with a blank face and you could tell they're not even paying attention to what I'm saying. Yes. So yeah. that's just like goes over their head and it was useless. But if they work with us, I mean, and I'm not trying to say that their job is not important. Their job is super important. And uh, kudos to them for doing that because I could not do their job. But just if you understand just a little bit of how the laboratory works, all the departments of the laboratory, then we can offer patients that much better yeah, care. I agree. For sure, for sure. And then I wouldn't get the comment of just give me own egg. <laughs> <laughs> Who does this pee belong to? I'll take two days to find out. That was <laughs> dramatic. Now I'm tempted to just like take home a urine container and just fill it with apple juice and just leave it somewhere. <laughs> It'd probably take freak it. people out. 
Oh no, you know what I should do? I should take a urine container, fill it with <laughs> apple juice and drink in front of in front of people. In the cafeteria, take it to the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> Instantly kicked out of the cafeteria, banned from showing up, get written up. Highly inappropriate things to do at work. Let's see how long it takes for a patient or a visitor to report you for uh, <laughs> drinking pee. For sure. <laughs> that that technically was back in the old and medieval days how they tested for diabetes. They had a pee tester. If your pee t- tasted sweet, you probably had diabetes. Ugh. Oh, God. Yep, that's a thing. Wow. That- or even with pipette uh, mouthing, like... Uh, how mouth pipetting? I, I mean, just like, uh, just thinking about it makes me want to puke. I mean, seriously, how the aerosols because, and everything. Uh-uh. And I hear, and I hear from coworkers who's been doing this for like thirty, and forty, still- and they have these stories, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I used to like swallow that all the time." I'm like, "Uh, uh, uh no, no." Oh no, 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 no. But that is part of the reason why we have so many misconceptions about what we do and a bad reputation. Because when people think about medical technologies, that's what they think about. And during a, a certain period of time, the workforce was so small because people wouldn't want to go into this field because of that. But nowadays we have so many regulations and so many safety guards that that would not happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And which is, which is really great considering how far we've come. And, and I, unfortunately, you know, things with things like HIV really pushed push for a lot of uh, safety regulations because it was such an unknown disease. And it's kind of like how we are with COVID now. You know, we're having so many like masks are now at essential at work now. Whereas before, like, you know, it's like, oh, like, I mean, you know, you open a body fluid under a hood, but then you might like, you know, pop it open and stick on a chemistry analyzer. You don't really think about the aerosols there. And it's like, eh. maybe, maybe in the future, you know, lab techs on the line are like, you guys used to do tests without masks on or like a face shield. Are you crazy? You know, like, it may be like that too. That may be a little conscious as well. Like, dude, I don't wear goggles. I used to wear in refer- like my research lab, but in the clinical setting, I don't recall wearing them. So I, I, know should, we- I should totally wear. Why am I not wearing goggles? <laughs> not touch your face. Yeah, don't touch your. Yeah, don't <laughs> touch your face. All right, all right. Let's just go ahead and stop there. Thanks, you guys, for tuning in to this episode of the Off the Bench podcast. Uh, Stay safe, and we hope to catch you guys on the next episode. Jasmine, bye. See you next time. This is Promi, and let us know what you think. Bye.